Uh, well, good morning and welcome to you all. My name is Scott McKee. I want to welcome those of you here with me in the Word Church Sanctuary and wherever you may be, those of you joining us online. I know we have mostly southeastern Michigan, but also 18 different states today, uh, three different countries, Mexico, Un United Kingdom, welcome to you as well. Uh, wherever you are, welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad you're here for the third installment of our series called Return. Return, that's the title of the series. Subtitle, The Call of the Minor Prophets for Today. And again, when we talk about minor prophets, that word minor refers to their brevity, not to their significance. The writings of the minor prophets are shorter than are the writings of the major prophets. Now, our prophet of the day is Amos, and he is one of the longest minor prophets. He's a major minor prophet. Uh, nine chapters, this uh, book of Amos could easily be a sermon series all by itself, but today I will try to summarize the prophet Amos, and you may want to have a Bible open today. If you carry a Bible with you or have one on your phone or app, you might want to open to the Old Testament book of Amos. If you're having trouble finding it, uh, just know that it's right before Obadiah. <laughs> Hope that's helpful to you. Uh, Amos starts his book this way, Amos chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. Amos wants us to know that he is not a professional prophet. He's one of the shepherds of Tekoa. Tekoa, a very small town, uh, just uh, 12 miles south of Jerusalem. And he said this in chapter 7, you heard this read earlier, Amos says, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd... And I also took care of sycamore fig trees before the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go, prophesy to my people Israel. Amos really wants us to know, I am not a pro. I don't have a license to preach. I've never been to prophet school. I've never been to seminary. I am a, I'm a farmer for crying out loud. The only reason I'm doing this, Amos says, is because God told me to. There's no other reason that I would do this. It's not like being a prophet is in my family. My real job is caring for sheep. I've got this side hustle in which I uh, care for uh, fig trees. And between the two, I do pretty well. I wasn't looking for, for another uh, job. Uh, but God pulled me aside and told me to go to Israel. And I just want to point out that this is the way God most usually works. When God has an assignment, when God has a message, when God has something that he wants done, he scans the earth and looks for one of his children to tap on the shoulder and send for this assignment. And God seems to delight in using non-professional, untrained people. Now, I say this gingerly because I am a professional. Unlike the prophet Amos, I've been to seminary. I am credentialed and licensed and certified. But I have observed in the Bible and in my experience that when God has a really big assignment, he sends a volunteer. He sends a non-professional. He sends someone who seems on the surface to be so unqualified. It's like God is saying, I don't care about credentials and qualifications. It's like God is saying, I am the one who qualifies. Now, this is professionally frustrating to me. 
uh, in the first century, when God was doing some amazingly new things, there were plenty of Bible scholars around, professional clergy around, but God instead went to tax collectors and fishermen and carpenters. It's like God is saying, this project is way too big to leave to the professionals. And when God wanted to accomplish the salvation of humanity, he sent his son, a carpenter, a volunteer, for the redemption of humankind. God is still looking for teachers and engineers and accountants and artists and students and freelancers and stay-at-home parents to give assignments to. And God is not concerned about your training or your qualifications. God is not concerned about your ability or your inability. God is only concerned about your availability. God uses those who make themselves available. And 750 years before Jesus Christ, a prophet from Tekoa named Amos made himself available for God to use. And God sends this guy to Israel. Now, this is doubly surprising. Not only is Amos untrained and uncertified, he's not from Israel. He's from Tekoa, which is a town in Judah. Uh, let's look at a map. This might be helpful. At this point in history, uh, God's people are living as a divided nation. Uh, under the first three kings of Israel, it was one united kingdom, but after the death of Solomon, the nation divides north and south. North becomes known as Israel. South becomes known as Judah. Both north and south drift away from God. Uh, each now have their own king and their own capital cities. And God sends some of the prophets to the north, and God sends some of the prophets to the south. What makes Amos interesting is Amos is from the south and sent to the north. Not only is Amos untrained for what he's about to do, he's going to an area that is unfamiliar and even hostile. He's got a difficult task for sure. And not only is, is the assignment difficult, he's got a very difficult message to deliver. And we see this very early on in Amos. We know the news is not good. Again, in verse 2 in Amos, uh, Amos chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. Right? The Lord roars. Have you ever had a, a lion roar in your face? Uh, probably not, but I assume it is terrifying. It will definitely get your attention. Very early on, we know this message of Amos is going to be one of judgment. It's going to be a very difficult message, and Amos begins by pronouncing a judgment against one of Israel's enemies. This is what it says, his first pronouncement of judgment. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. In other words, uh, this city, Damascus, is being judged by God because of their barbaric cruelty when they invaded Gilead, a city of Israel. Now, Israel's not uh, unhappy about this. They think this is great. They hate Damascus. They think it's fantastic that God is bringing judgment on Damascus. In fact, they're glad that Amos includes some of the gory details. He goes on in the next verse. God says, I will send fire upon the house of Hazael that will consume the fortress of Ben-Hadad. 
I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. So, so Amos begins by pronouncing judgment, destruction against one of Israel's enemies. Do you think Israel likes this sermon? They love this sermon. Amos is on a roll. He's off to a very good start. And then Amos goes on to pronounce judgment against another uh, enemy of Israel. And it goes on, he goes on to say, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will, I will not turn my, back my wrath, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire upon the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron until the last of the Philistines is dead, says the sovereign Lord. So God now pronounces judgment against the Philistines, another enemy of Israel. How do you think the people are still, you think they're still liking the sermon? They're loving the sermon. Preach it, Amos. I told you this guy's a prophet. Didn't I tell you he's a prophet? He's bringing it down. He doesn't stop there. He, he announces that God's judgment is going to fall on four other nations, all of them enemies of Israel. And each time he uses this formula, for three sins, even for four, I will not relent. God is not judging these nations because of one sin, but because of multiple sins. And the fourth sin is the straw that pushed things too far. It'd be like saying the straw that broke the camel's back. This one sin that, that tried God's patience to the limits. But an interesting thing is happening, and his, his listeners don't realize what's going on. Let's look at that map again. Amos pronounces judgments. Again, here's Israel where Amos is uh, preaching. Here's where he's from. And he pronounces these judgments on six different nations. Aram going down. Ammon going down, Moab, strike, Edom going down, Philistines, uh, judgment, Phoenicia, judgment. Uh, God is in his judgment circling like a hawk circling his prey. And we might have an idea what's going to happen next, but they have no idea. And then Amos pronounces a judgment against a seventh nation, and it's Judah. Now, this is surprising because they know Amos is from Judah. Amos is pronouncing judgment on his own people. Um, but Israel is not too sad about that. In spite of the close proximity and in spite of their common history, there's no love lost between these two separated uh, groups. And Israel is just okay with God judging Judah to the south. In fact, they're probably relieved because this is the seventh pronouncement and in the ancient world, the number seven is, a, is the number of completion. So finally, the judgment must be completed. This sermon must be about over. They're getting ready to go to lunch, and then the prophet gives an eighth pronouncement, a surprising eighth pronouncement. You want to guess who that was against? Yeah, it was Israel. And this is what uh, that, that judgment says. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Israel. That's the people he's talking to. Even for four I will not turn my, back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. 
In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. You think this is a great sermon now? No cheering. Amos has gone from preaching to meddling. Judgment is now coming to Israel. And it's harsh. And what was the last straw? For Israel, the last straw was the way people who claimed to know God treated the poor. Right? The problem wasn't that they weren't going to church. It says they sleep on the altars. They're spending lots of time in church. The problem is how they treat the poor. They rip off the poor. Now, I want to show you an example of this because they should have known better. The Old Testament is replete with passages about this. Their scriptures talk about this. Our Old Testament talks about this. Look at this example because it's, it's repeated elsewhere throughout the Bible. This from Deuteronomy. They would have known this. Do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Pay attention. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I commanded you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field, and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains... For the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes of your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is why I command you to do this. Okay, three people, three groups of people named repeatedly here, almost as a triplet. And those three groups are aliens, the fatherless, and the widow, the aliens, the fatherless, and the widow. This phrase is repeated not just in this passage, but dozens of times throughout the Old Testament. Why those three groups, the alien, the fatherless, and the widow? Why are those three groups named out so specifically? Because in that culture, those were the three groups of people, the three types of people that were most vulnerable to injustice. Those were the three kinds of people, the three groups of people that most needed somebody to step up as a champion, as a voice for them. The fatherless, the alien, and the widow. Now, you could argue that every culture has their most vulnerable. And, and uh, I don't know, in, in the United States in 21st century, whether our group is exactly the same or whether we would have different groups, but the Bible repeatedly says when you, uh, how you treat these marginalized folks, these folks that need a champion, is how you treat God himself. This, uh, this is an example from Proverbs. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. Giving to the poor is like giving to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. I don't know about you, but when I saw that video of Pastor Sean Carroll at the marathon, and he's winded, and he's, he's sweating uh, for a cause, it really inspired me that next year's marathon, I'm definitely going to stay home again. Um, and I'm going to sponsor more runners next year. Because giving to the poor is lending to the Lord. And this beautiful phrase also in the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures from Psalm 68, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. A father to the fatherless. Such a beautiful 
phrase, and I think of all my fatherly instincts that I have with my kids and with my 16-year-old daughter who just got a driver's license, and as she was pulling out of the driveway for the first solo flight, going to her friend's house for her first maiden voyage, and Angie and I stood in the driveway, and I was like, you got this, sweetheart, you know, be careful, and she's pulling out, and we're, we're waving to her, you got this, baby girl, and Angie turns to me and says, you're going to follow her, aren't you? I'm like, you bet I am. You got this, honey. Yep. The love and protectiveness that a father feels for his child is just a dim reflection of how the heavenly father is concerned for those on the margins of society. God's people are to share God's heart. You may remember several years ago after being involved in India for years, building schools and starting churches, we became aware of a form of religious prostitution that exists in some of these small villages where we work. We were just unaware of what was going on right under our noses, that there's a form of human trafficking, human slavery, especially heinous because it is religious in nature. And, you know, we've been sending ward members over to India, and they came back just gripped by this cause. And they did an event a few years ago. Some of you were there, and a little fundraising event. But the name of that they called this event, that the title they came up still grips me to this day. They called the event Every daughter deserves to dream. Every daughter deserves to dream. That, that, that phrase just stirs every parental instinct that I have inside of me. This cannot be. I, I think of my daughter, and I think of these thousands of girls and women that are caught in this. This has to stop. You may know that we've joined the fight against human trafficking in Thailand and then later here in the United States more recently. The plight of these girls just unleashes, right? You feel it too. All of our instincts that we have to protect our, our, our daughters and our sisters, but the Bible says that instinct to defend and protect should be applied to everyone who lives on the margins, everyone who's a victim of injustice. Again, then Jesus said, what you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. Amos goes on here in chapter 3. Uh, I will tear down the winter houses along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed, and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. So in Amos' day, there's this growing inequity between the rich and the poor, and you can kind of trace this even through archaeology. Remember when Canaan was first settled, God gave equal amounts of land to each tribe, and everyone pretty much lived the same. And archaeologists, even when they look at homes that go back to the 10th century, all the houses are, are very similar. Now fast forward just a little bit to the time of Amos in the 8th century uh, uh, B.C., uh, you'll find uh, areas where there are enormous mansions for the rich and just hovels for the poor. And this is what Amos is talking about. There's this theme that runs throughout Amos that those who have power have grown in Amos's day increasingly callous toward those who don't. And uh, this is where Amos gets really fired up. And I shared this verse a couple weeks ago. Amos says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on, the, on, the, on Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Now, if Amos had gone to seminary, he would have learned not to call women cows. <laughs> you can't do that 
Amos. Now, these are very good cows. The cows of Bashan are known to be great cows, but the image Amos is given here, these, these, this is a group of women, but they, they, they were like well-fed cattle tr- tramping on the poor. And they're so callous about it, they order drinks while they do it. I'd like a martini, please. Extra dry. Thank you. Crush, crush, crush. He's saying their nation has been defined by consumption. Right? And then, and then he's going to drive this home here uh, with an illustration. Amos 5, I, 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 oh, he says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Right? What, what, what does Amos have against harps and certain instruments? Uh, uh, nothing. These people are very religious. They worship. But he said, you, you can't worship God and have all these services and all these potluck suppers as a church and not care about the poor. You can't do that. Ambrose, a uh, church leader in the 4th century, uh, wrote, there, there is your brother naked and crying, and you stand confused over the choice of an attractive floor covering. 4th century wrote that. You stand confused over your choice of attractive uh, floor covering. Basil the Great, a theologian and bishop, also in the 4th century in, in modern-day Turkey, he wrote, the bread you do not use is the bread of the hungry. The garment hanging in your wardrobe is the garment of the person who is naked. The shoes you do not wear are the shoes of the one who is barefoot. The money you keep locked away is the money of the poor. He's saying church attendance is important, but it doesn't mean that you're living according to God's standard. And then he used this illustration, and this is, he's kind of landing his sermon here. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand, and the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line. I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. So Amos uses an uh, illustration in his sermon from the field of construction, from tools, uh, something I have never been able to do uh, because I don't have any tools. And uh, my philosophy is if it can't be fixed with a screwdriver or a roll of duct tape, it cannot be fixed. Uh, so I borrowed a plumb line. This is a, a plumb line. This is a real tool, I'm told. Some of you are familiar with this. A weight on the bottom and a string. This is a very old tool. It's been used thousands of years. They used this in ancient Egypt uh, to determine what true plumb is, a a perfectly straight line. Uh, There are other instruments that do this today, but this is used as well today in construction, a plumb line. A plumb line is a standard. It's an absolute standard. A wall is true to plumb or it's not. A table is true to plumb or it's not. You notice carpenters are not into relativism. You can always find somebody who's less generous than you are. 
And we compare, those people are stingy. I'm not, I'm not as stingy as they are. But Amos would say, no, you're, you're using something that's off plumb. You're using a wall that's not straight to compare your straight line. You use God's word as the plumb line. That's the absolute. Or we look over here. I, I grew up in a, a you know, tribe of Christians who, who felt like we always had to be different than culture. That was the big deal. You have to be the opposite of culture. But then sometimes culture gets something right, and it's confusing to us. So culture starts serving the poor. Culture starts advocating for justice. And we're, we're oh, I, thought that was, I thought that was our thing. Is that your thing? Uh, if it's your thing, then maybe it's, maybe it's not mine. But, but we don't need to look over here. We don't need to look over here. The standard is God's word. That tells us what's plumb. That tells us what our straight life looks like. And I think the prophet Amos would want to ask us today to think about, where is your life off plumb? Where has your life gotten off plumb from the scriptures. Desmond Tutu said, uh, there's nothing more radical, nothing more revolutionary, nothing more subversive against injustice and oppression than the Bible. If you want to keep people subjugated, the last thing you place in their hands is a Bible. I want to ask us to think about where is my life off plumb? Do some reflection on that. And then receive the hope of the prophets for the future. Right? Uh, uh, there's this prophet pattern. You see it in Amos, but you see it in other prophets too, where it feels, like they, it feels like they slap us around, you know, judgment, 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 and then they say, and the mercy of God is fantastic over here. And then they punch us in the gut and tell us how we're living wrong. But then in the end, God's going God's to take care of it all, and it's based on his righteousness. And we feel like we're back and forth, like, like, like watching one of those Top Chef shows, you know, uh, where you're not quite sure if, if he's pleased or not. But Amos ends, ends his... Uh, his, his book with uh, a beautiful image about the future. And he says, in, in that day, he's this phrase, in that day, in, in that day that is to come, that day in the future, he says, and this is, this is Amos 9-11, I will restore David's fallen tent. He said, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its ruins and build it as it used to be. Now, this would have been good news to the listeners of Amos. David was that great king in Israel's history. And God says, someday, I'm going to send a new king in the line of David. Someone who will unify and rescue my people. And, of course, God did send a rescuer, a redeemer, a savior. God did send a king, and his name is Jesus. He's a king of a different kind. He is the one of whom the prophets foretold, and he is the true hope for this world. Will you join me in prayer? God, we confess that using your standard of your word that our lives are off plumb. Our heart doesn't always reflect your heart. Our actions don't always reflect the actions of your people. Search us. Forgive us. Correct us. Guide us. And Father, we're grateful today for, for Jesus of whom the prophets told this Messiah that would come one day and, and rescue his people. And God, we, we confess today, and maybe there are people today that would want to pray this in a very personal way and pray, God, I need to be rescued. 
I need to be redeemed. I need a king to whom I can give my allegiance. And maybe there are some today that would invite you to be the king over their lives, their rescuer, their redeemer, their renewer, that today would be a, a line in the sand of making a resolve uh, commitment to the God who redeems, to the true Messiah. We pray together now for the aliens and the fatherless and the widow. We pray for all who live on the margins of society, the forgotten and the overlooked, the poor and the vulnerable. Holy Spirit, move us to action that we might be your instruments in this world. As we prepare to leave this place, God, help us to take the name of Jesus with us, to represent him wherever you lead us, to be his hands and feet in this world. And this we pray in the life-giving name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Would you stand and sing along with our choir?